All right. Hey, I welcome all of you at our uh, four different campuses and wherever you're worshiping today. I want you to know we are stoked that you made the decision to be in worship. You know, you have discretion over your time, don't you? At least most of you do, and with most of the, much of the time you have. And you certainly have a choice to make when it comes to worship, corporate worship. And so we're so glad that you've made that choice to be at one of our campuses today. We kick off a brand new sermon series today that I'm excited about. We're exploring the book of Ecclesiastes. But I want to tell you, if you're kind of new to the, new to the faith or, or maybe you haven't read the Bible very much, well, Ecclesiastes is one of my favorite books in the Bible. It really is. I just love to read it. It's got so many twists and turns. I need to tell you, if you're new, it's also the weirdest book, okay? It really is the weirdest book in many ways in all of the Bible. In fact, you will read some statements in there, and we'll look at a few of those in a moment, where you will go, what is that doing in the Bible? It will seem bizarre. You will even read some statements in Ecclesiastes that sound, listen, at face value, contradictory to everything else the Bible teaches, okay? So I want us to look at a few examples of that today as we kick off this series and lay some groundwork for where we're going in the next few weeks. For instance, how about this statement? Sorrow is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. Now, come on, does that sound a bit twisted and cynical to you? In fact, in Proverbs, it says, a merry heart does good like medicine. So what is this writer really saying here? Or how about this? Do not be overrighteous, neither be overwise. Why destroy yourself? Now, how does that strike you? What does that say to your soul? So I commend the enjoyment of life because nothing is better for a man under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Or how about this statement? All share a common destiny, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad. As it is with the good man, so with the sinner. Now, if you're trying to win your friend to Christ and you're reading through Scripture together, you probably don't want to show that verse, right? Because it's going to lead to some interesting discussion about what does that really mean. Or how about a verse like this? A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. Really? Nothing better than that? Or here's one final one. Man's fate, get this now, man's fate is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. Man has no advantage over the animal. All go to the same place. Who knows if the spirit of man rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. Now, I think you would agree those are statements that you just wouldn't expect to find in the Bible. And so you kind of ask yourself, what's going on here? 
Why would the man Solomon, the acknowledged author of this, who is known as the wisest man up to this point, why would he write such preposterous statements? Well, let's explore that for a few moments. The writer identifies himself in chapter 1, verse 1, where we read the words of the teacher, son of David, king in Israel. Now, David had a number of sons, 19, in fact, if you kind of count them all up. But there was only one son of David that was actually king in Israel, and that, of course, was Solomon. Now, if you have read a lot of commentaries on the Old Testament, you may know that a number of the books in the Old Testament, particularly, and some in the New, their authorship is disputed. And so as we always do at the beginning of a new series, we put some bibliographical references down at the bottom of your note page on the back of your bulletin. And if you're the kind of Bible student who loves those kind of arcane issues and getting into all those gnarly details about why some scholars believe that the acknowledged author of a book is not necessarily the author, then I encourage you to read those uh, because they certainly delve into that in a lot of depth. And those books, by the way, will also help you with not just understanding some of those really uh, esoteric issues, but they'll also help you just understand the book in general. They've been very helpful to me, so I commend them to you. But there are a number of reasons why some scholars believe maybe Solomon wasn't the author of this. For instance, his name is never mentioned in the book. Instead, he used sort of a code name, Koheleth. That's the name that's used. It literally means the preacher. So that's one of the reasons scholars say, well, he's never actually named here. But that's true of a lot of the books of the Bible when you think about it. And a, another thing they point out is that many of the statements he makes here seems to contradict what is said in Proverbs which was also written primarily by Solomon. It's also true that the phrase son of David that he uses in verse 1 can mean grandson or great-grandson. In fact, Jesus himself was called son of David. So it doesn't necessarily mean the biological son of someone. So there are a number of reasons why people question the Solomonic authorship of this. But I'm going to assume that Solomon is the author throughout the series. And one of the main reasons I'm making that assumption is because there's a lot of autobiographical information in this book that fits exactly the life and experience of Solomon. But when he writes this book, listen, he is depressed. There are three key words or phrases I want to highlight for you now that as we get started on this journey, and we won't be spending a lot of time every week digging like this in the following weeks, but we need to get a good foundation so we can get the most out of it. There are three phrases that you need to zero in on if you're going to have the key to unlocking this book. The first is found in verse 2. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. Now, that word occurs 35 times in the book. Now, that's an average of about three times per chapter. Meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. That's a key word 
to this book. Now, why does he say that? Because of verse 3. What does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Now, if you're a person who likes to mark in your own copy of Scripture, I would urge you strongly to underline the phrase, under the sun. That is the key, one of the keys to understanding why there are so many strange statements in the book of Ecclesiastes. That phrase, under the sun, occurs 32 times in this book. Three of those, it says under heaven. I believe it's meaning the same thing when he says under heaven. And he's looking at life as it appears at the end of your nose. In other words, Solomon in this book is describing life as it would be if it was purely empirical. That's a philosophical phrase that means you're only living it from a humanistic point of view, only what you can measure with your senses, what you can see, hear, touch, measure, and so on. And he says the conclusion is, and this is the third phrase you need to zero in on, when life is lived that way, it's like chasing after the wind. That phrase occurs nine times in the book. So do you have the phrases? Meaningless, meaningless, everything meaningless. That's one. Under the sun is a key phrase. It means life without God in the equation at all from a purely humanistic point of view. And then the third phrase is it's like chasing after the wind. And by the way, he brings all three of those together in verse 14, where we read, I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. So what have we said so far? Solomon in this book is doing something that no one else in the Bible ever does. That's important for you to understand. He's describing what life would be like if there's no God, no afterlife, no no heaven or hell, nothing that we understand from a Christian worldview, this is the conclusion you would come to. Life is meaningless and empty. And by the way, he's not the only one who's ever come to that conclusion. I want to tell you today, there are millions and millions of people on this planet who are on the same pursuit Solomon was on for a while, and they're coming to many of the same conclusions. So as we start on this journey today, I want to set the foundation by looking at some of Solomon's personal story. And I think you're going to see that it's kind of like looking in the mirror in many ways. And ultimately, you will ask, is this my story too? And I want you to think about that. What is your story today, wherever you are on your journey, and how does it intersect with Solomon's journey? So let's get to know him a bit better. First, you need to know that the writer of this book, Solomon, is the most successful king in all of Israel's history. He's known for a number of things. Let me highlight just a few of them for you. Probably the first one, if you bring up his name, Solomon, the first word that comes to Bible students' minds is wisdom. He was known as being a very wise person. Now, we get a lot of the biographical information about Solomon from two Old Testament books, 1 Kings and 2 Chronicles. And here's what we read in 1 Kings chapter 4. 
men of all nations came to listen to Solomon's wisdom sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. Now think of that. Here's a leader in a top position with the nation of Israel and his wisdom is so famous out there that leaders and sages from other countries all around are literally traveling and sending envoys in their stead to check out his wisdom and help him to get him to help them solve some of their issues. The second thing you need to know about Solomon, not only, not only was he famously wise, but he was also extravagantly rich. I mean, this dude really was wealthy. We read in 1 Kings 10, the weight of the gold that Solomon received yearly, catch this, was 666 talents, not including the revenues from merchants and traders and from all the Arabian kings and the governors of the land. Now, let me break that down for you. A talent was an ancient metric that was used. In today's metrics that we tend to use in our culture, that would be 23 metric tons of gold. If you break that down to ounces, which is the way people usually talk about gold today, it would be 811,301 ounces of gold every year. That's a lot of gold. And gold, for generations and generations, has been a standard means of evaluating material wealth. A few days ago, I was curious because I wanted to give you the exact dollars, U.S. dollars, that his salary would be in today's currency. So I looked it up, and of course, it fluctuates a little bit week by week, day by day. But on the day I looked up the value of an ounce of gold just a few days ago, on that particular day... It was $1,495.95 per ounce. So here's the bottom line. Solomon received $1,213,665,730.95 every year. And that's just his salary. That's not all the other perks. This dude is wealthy. But he was not only wise and rich, he was also famous. When the queen of Sheba heard about his wisdom and all these amazing aspects of his king and rulership, she came to visit him and to test him, scripture says, with hard questions and catch her conclusion. We read it here in 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 6. She said to the king, that is King Solomon, and the queen of Sheba was a very dignified uh, woman. She was a leader herself of immense skill and wisdom. And she said, the report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true. But I did not believe these things. Until I came and saw with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half was told me. In wisdom and wealth, you have far exceeded the report I heard. She said, I just want you to know, I heard it. I thought, boy, that's impressive. But I just couldn't believe it until I saw it with my own eyes. And I realized after coming here, I didn't even hear half of it. He was also very... Not only wise, 
wealthy. He was famous, but he was also very successful as a king. There's a curious little verse in 1 Kings chapter 4. It reads, the people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. This is describing life within Solomon's reign. They ate, they drank, and they were happy. Now, if you chose as a student of God's word to study ancient Israel, here's what you would find. They had many, many kings through the centuries, but their boundary, their territories were the largest that they ever were during the reign of Solomon. Never before, never after was there as much territory encompassed in the nations, and it uses both Judah and Israel there, that's really They're really all together as one during the reign of Solomon, as one united kingdom, but they still had their own identity, kind of north and south. It was at its peak during Solomon's reign. And here's the key. Solomon never saw war. His father David did. David was known as a man of blood. I mean, he was constantly engaged in battles against enemies all around Solomon's son Rehoboam was a man of war. He too and all of his successors were engaged in war after war after war. But catch this now. One of the reasons the kingdom was so spectacularly successful and so stable during his reign is that Solomon, during his entire 40 years, never engaged in war. But here's one other aspect of Solomon that I don't want you to miss And after hearing what you've just heard, you may, some of you, may find this one hard to believe. But it's true. Solomon was also a deeply spiritual man. The verse we read just a moment ago about the queen of Sheba who came all the way from the country of Ethiopia to visit him. It says, when the queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon, and catch this phrase, and his relation to the name of the Lord, she wasn't just coming because she wanted to get some political tips, or she had heard that, wow, he really knows how to make alliances with other countries, or boy, he knows how to make the economy soar. Let me tell you, I want to learn about, no, no. One of the key reasons she came to visit is that Solomon had a solid reputation as a deeply spiritual man. In other words, someone who really knew God. And you know where all that started? It started early on when he was still a young man and God had a special visitation with Solomon when he was just about ready to start ruling. You can read about this in scripture. Here's how it went. God literally said to Solomon, look, I'll give you whatever you ask for. And Solomon didn't ask for long life. He didn't ask for wealth. He didn't ask for victory over his enemies. Solomon requested wisdom. And God said, because you ask for wisdom as a ruler, to be able to rule your people wisely, and you didn't ask for these other things, I'm going to throw them in as well. And the wisdom that Solomon had was a gift from God. We have about 200, roughly, of his Proverbs in the book of Proverbs, but he wrote 3,000. 
3,000 proverbs. And the wisdom that God gave him was astounding. He wrote three of the books that we have in our Bible. The Song of Solomon, also called Song of Songs, he wrote as a young man, newly married, his first marriage, just discovering the wonders of love and romance. It is a fantastic love poem inspired by God. We have the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, Proverbs, rather, which I believe was written in sort of the middle portion and compiled during the middle portion of Solomon's life. And it seems that the focus there was particularly to help young men. He says over and over again, my son, my son, my son. It's like his son is ready to launch into life. But it's to prepare young people, men and women, for life. And you know what the point is of Proverbs? Don't make all the mistakes yourself. Life is too short for trial and error. Life is too short for you to make all the mistakes. Learn from the mistakes of others. Learn from this wisdom of the ages. Two fabulous books he wrote. But then, as an older man, no doubt toward the end of life, he looks back over life and he writes this book of Ecclesiastes. Now, here's what you need to understand. As a younger man, he had known God intimately. And yet, as can happen, he had drifted and drifted far from God. And he had developed an outlook on life that is rather godless. If you can believe this, Solomon is living like a practical atheist. From a purely humanistic, empirical approach to life. And so he's describing all of these disappointments on, of old age when you've lived for years just kind of drifting from God and leaving him out. 1 Kings 11 reads, the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. Folks, some people don't finish well. We often think of young people as being the ones who are really in danger. And I get it. Because young people, they're facing a lot of big decisions that are going to greatly impact the trajectory of their life from here on. Would you agree? And so, so many of the life-shaping decisions we make are made in our teens, in our 20s, in our 30s. Right? But I'm saying to you today that I'm beginning to believe the more and more stories I hear, the more and more people I know, the more and more I get to know about many of the characters in the Bible, I'm telling that old age may be the most dangerous time of all. Because you can feel like most of your good years are behind you. You can feel like, well, I've already got this figured out. And you begin to get away from the disciplines that got you where you were. And many of the 
people that you loved and knew you well begin to die. And so you no longer have that accountability relationally that you had. And so what we see in scripture and in real life over and over is that godly women and men men who knew God greatly and did great things for God go off the rails toward the end of their lives. And that's exactly what happened with Solomon. He fell into the old tired traps of sex and greed. And it was his downfall. Chapter 11, verse 3 reads, he had, hold your breath, 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. You read that and you go, has this man lost his mind? 700 wives, 300, what is going on here? Well, first of all, you need to know, he probably didn't know the names of many of them. Seriously, this was purely a political, strategic approach. He would marry the daughters of the kings and princes and governors and he would marry into the noble families, the royal families of the nations around him and he did it purely for strategic political reasons. And then when some dispute happens later on, it's kind of hard to go at war with the guy who's married to your daughter, right? And so you're dealing not with a total stranger, you're dealing now with your father-in-law, your mother-in-law, your brother-in-law, your sister-in-law. It's now a family deal. This was his foreign policy tactic. But what we need to understand is that as the Apostle Paul later wrote, do not be misled, bad company corrupts good character. And so the bad company that he had kept for tactical reasons begins to corrupt his own character and he begins to turn aside after other gods. And years later, as an old man, he sits down and begins to write about the meaning of life from this perspective. It's life purely under the sun because none of these gods are real gods. And life at the end of his nose has become utterly meaningless. I will say it again. One of the most dangerous times in life, you may find this hard to believe, you think it's when you're young. One of the most dangerous times in life is the later years when there's no longer the accountability, when you think you've been there, done that, when you think you've got it all figured out, when you throw off some of the disciplines that used to keep you going strong. And that's what has happened to Solomon. He's essentially become a narcissist. Life is all about him. 115 times in this book, he uses pronouns like I, me, and my. He says, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in my work. And Solomon says, when you live life like that, like an animal, you end up dying like a dog. And he makes a statement like Ecclesiastes 3, man's fates like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the animal. 
I don't know what kind of journey you're on today, but I will tell you this. There are millions and millions of women and men who could stand right alongside Solomon and go, that's my story too. That's my story too. When I read this, it's like I'm looking in the mirror. Wow. Yeah, life is pretty meaningless and void, pretty empty. It's like chasing after the wind when you leave God out of the equation. William Lane Craig is an apologist for the Christian faith that I really respect. And he writes, if each individual person passes out of existence when he dies, in other words, you die and bang, that's it, you no longer exist, then what ultimate meaning can be given to his or her life? Does it really matter whether they ever existed at all? William Lane Craig asked. It might be said that their life was important because they influenced others or affected the course of history. But this only shows a relative significance to his or her life, not an ultimate significance. His or her life may be important relative to certain other events, but what is the ultimate significance of any of those events? Ultimately, it makes no difference. And I think Craig is absolutely right. If, if it's life purely under the sun. If, if it's life with no God factored into the equation and no life after this one. Friend, I want to tell you something. If you begin to drift from God, if you begin to live life under the sun with no God as a reference point, can I tell you what will happen? It will get darker and darker and more and more meaningless and you will begin to come to some of the same conclusions Solomon did. Trying to find meaning in a life like that without God is like chasing after the wind. And I want to tell you, you don't need to read a 3,000 year old book to conclude that. All you got to do is listen to the morning news. All you got to do is listen to the talk show and let any modern person tell their story who's factored God out of the equation. Oh, it may be exciting for a while, but ultimately you begin to ask those hard questions that Solomon was forced to ask, and he couldn't make sense of life without God in the picture. But I want to tell you, there are glimpses in this book, glimpses of glory. There are moments when he kind of out of the blue, mind you, out of the blue, he will drop in one of those key questions that he could not get around. Can I give you an example of one of those that he just could not get around and get over? It's found in chapter 3, verse 11. Solomon writes, he, meaning God, God, has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men and women. The Amplified Version reads, He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also planted eternity into men's hearts and minds. A divinely implanted sense of purpose, working through the ages, which nothing under the sun but God alone can satisfy. 
And my question to you today in these closing moments of our message is, have you found that divine purpose for you? Have you found that kind of satisfaction that only God can supply? Or to put it a little differently, have you found what true, eternal, abundant life really feels like? You know, Jesus made one of the most profound statements I believe our Lord ever made as recorded in John 17, verse 3. He described what eternal life is. Here's what Jesus said, and you can improve on that. Now, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Some people erroneously believe that this eternal life that we can experience with God is only a quantitative thing. It's all about going to heaven when you die. I think they're absolutely wrong. Don't get me wrong. Obviously, we believe in heaven. Obviously, we know. Jesus talked about it. Scripture is crystal clear. There is a glorious reward in heaven for those who know Christ Jesus. So it is eternal. It is a quantitative thing. But if that's all you think it is, you have sorely misunderstood the gospel. Eternal life is not only quantitative, it's qualitative. It is about a, an abundant, full meaningful life here and now, the very kind of life that Solomon said, I'm so frustrated trying to find this living life at the end of my nose, living life without God in the equation. Eternal life is not so much about a place as it is about a person. As I close today, I just want to say to you, if you're on a journey searching, wondering, yearning, trying to find satisfying meaning in life, I want you to know that God has put that sort of eternity in your heart that can only be satisfied in a relationship with him. Perhaps no one put it better than C.S. Lewis did in his famous book called Mere Christianity. Let me just read this brief section. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, now listen closely to this, If I got this desire that no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Oh, that's good. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, and that's what Solomon found, by the way, and we're going to get into a lot more detail of his kind of pleasures and his search next week as we continue in the series That does not prove the universe is a fraud. Probably what it means is that earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy, but only to arouse this awareness to suggest the real thing.
As Augustine in the 5th century famously said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. What we're going to learn in this series is that Solomon went crazy trying to find the answers. Learning, laughing, liquor, luxury, lust. He did it all. He experienced everything this world could offer. And he found it rather flat and boring at the end of the day. And the reason this book, strange as it is, peculiar as some of the statements are, is in the Bible. It is the true testimony of a real journey of a man who had drifted far from God and what he sought in, but he comes full circle at the end. And I can hardly wait for you to see what he said at the very end. My prayer and my hope is that as we go on this journey together, that wherever you are in this journey of life, that God is going to draw you closer to himself. If you're on a drift, that God would show you the meaninglessness of life under the sun. And if you're walking with God today, you would enjoy the abundance of that so much that you would say, why would anyone want anything else? This is life and life to the full. Father, would you help us today as we continue to explore Ecclesiastes in these coming weeks, would you help us to press into you and to learn from Solomon's testimony what life is like without God in the equation. We thank you that we can find and know eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And Father, I pray today for everyone who's wondering where the answers are, that by your spirit, that you would point them squarely to Jesus Christ. Because in him and him alone is found life and life abundant. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen.